Have you ever been so cold you can't remember what hot feels like? And then later, so hot you can't remember what cold feels like? It was like that. Because in that moment, God wasn't around and I couldn't exactly remember what he felt like. I suppose I knew that God loved me. I'm sure if I thought about it, I could remember what made me trust him. But I didn't think about that. Just then, all the truth I could feel was Adam and me and a snake dangling from a tree. And suddenly that snake's question felt more real and tangible than any walk we'd taken with God in the garden. The snake repeated its question. Did God really say that, Eve? I looked at Adam and he shrugged. Maybe in that moment, Adam couldn't really remember what God felt like either. Or maybe we just didn't want to remember. What we really wanted was to know. So because the fruit was good to look at and good to eat, and apparently good for knowing too, we tried it. And now you know the answer to the question. Eve, what were you thinking? <laughs> now I, just, just let that ruminate, that little skit there. Our creative team is very creative, and uh, I'll be getting to that a little bit more as I get into the message. My name is Greg Boyd, uh, and it's good to be here. Thank you. I've been out about doing some teaching at Northern Seminary and other things, and... and uh, uh, but it's really good to be back home. It's really good to be here. I miss you guys. I love you. I appreciate uh, uh, Nicole Bullock and, and uh, David Marr doing such a great job. They did fantastic work. It's, uh, we're, we're really blessed to have such great teachers around here. Um, so we're in this series that we're calling uh, Long Story Short. Because we want to try to capture the long story of the Bible, but we're going to do it by looking at some of the short stories in the Bible, some of the crucial turning points in the biblical narrative. And, and our goal is this. Many people have, they know some stories about the Bible and some stories in the Bible, but many can't connect the dots. They don't see the forest through the trees. They don't see how it fits into a coherent whole. And so this summer, we're looking at kind of the highlighting episodes in the Bible, uh, and we're doing it in a way to, that, so we can kind of connect the dots, showing the major themes that run throughout it. We're in particular going to be looking at these, these uh, episodes through the lens of, of two concepts, covenant and kingdom. Covenant being our relationship with God, and the kingdom being bringing about God's will on earth as, as it is in heaven. And out of the fullness of the covenant, the kingdom is built. It's going to be a, a central theme that's, that's running throughout this uh, whole series. Uh, connecting all the dots here. And uh, hopefully you can get an understanding of what this whole you know, Bible thing is about. Now, because we're going at some of the core themes of the Bible, and because our beliefs are based on the Bible, we're going to find in this series that, that we're going to sometimes be reviewing some of the core beliefs, distinctive beliefs of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, if, if you're new to Woodland Hills Church, some of this, maybe all of it, will be really new to you, and it might be mind-blowing. So if you're new, prepare. If you haven't heard this before, it can be... A paradigm shifter. If you've been to Bolton Hills for very long, however, some of this will be review. Because um, this is stuff we come back to all the time. This is some of our core convictions. But even if you've heard this message before, and this is going to apply especially for today, because today we're going to talk about two of the most, probably the two most foundational convictions of Woodland Hills Church. And so if you've been here for a while, you've heard this, but I want to encourage you to try to hear it as though you had never heard it before. Hear it like for the first time. This stuff is so important. We're going to see that everything in the kingdom revolves around these two things. And, and uh, it's so important that 
here, as you're listening to it, be listening for something that you haven't known before. Has this ever happened to you? It happens to me quite a bit, where you read a Bible verse, and, and you've read that verse 50 times, but that 51st time, boom, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I thought I understood it before, but now I, now I really get what it means. Or you hear a message, and maybe you've heard the message two, three, four times before, or something like it, but that fifth time, boom, the coin drops in the slot. And, and you just see stuff you didn't see before. You have a deeper appreciation of it. It, it, it impacts you more. You, you're just clear on stuff. You thought you understood before, but now you really get it. You won't have that experience, however, if you're not really listening. If you assume you already know, then you just kind of shut off and you don't give your chance, uh, yourself a chance to acquire a deeper understanding. In fact, even in neuroscience is now proving this, that repetition really is the key to learning. Our brains need saturation. And, so, and this kind of important stuff, you can't get too saturated. So let yourself get saturated. Stay curious. Stay hungry. Lean into this. It's all really important stuff. Um, David launched the series last week by talking about the original covenant uh, that God had with human beings. And I'm going to pick up where he left off. He left off with Adam and Eve in the garden and everything is just wonderful. And today we're going to look at how this thing went south. He goes, mm. It's often called the fall. The doctrine of the fall. I've never liked that term, though, because fall is kind of what you do if you trip over something. Oh, I fell. Uh, this wasn't an accidental tripping. This was a rebellion. So let's turn to the rebellion of Adam and Eve. It reads like this, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Just notice that in the story here, the serpent is simply one of the creatures that God made. It's kind of a crafty, you know, thing. Uh, later on, the New Testament will read into this and, and see this as sort of a representation of Satan. But in the story itself, it's just a, a, a wily creature that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, not the location. Nor shall you touch it, because if you do that, you're going to die. This thing is poison. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. God's a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, was it really? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. For the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sounds of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And the Lord said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman! Some people say that there's a woman to blame, but I know. It's probably my fault. So the woman who you gave me, she gave me from the tree and ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And this ends the tragic tale of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Lord, open our minds, open our hearts, open our innermost spirit to receive your word. Help us to hear this fresh and to sense its importance and to internalize this into our life. Bring your kingdom. Kingdomize our minds and hearts in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.
So today's message is entitled, Trouble in Paradise. <laughs> Trouble in Paradise. Uh, there's this... This passage is so packed with profound insight. It's just amazing. It's a, a psychologically brilliant passage. You could spend a whole summer on it, I suppose. But, but for, for, today, for today, I just want to bring, up, bring out these two fundamental teachings uh, that are found in this, this narrative and that form really the, the uh, core convictions of Wilden Hills Church. And I, I think the, the, the whole structure of the Bible follows from what we're going to be talking about right here this morning. But before I get to those two lessons, I want to have a nerd moment, if I may. Because I know that I am not the only nerd in this place or with our pod listeners. We tend to attract a lot of nerds. And nerds are right now wondering, before you get to the spiritual stuff, uh, you've got to answer some questions. Like, what's the genre of this, this, this narrative? Uh, it, how figuratively are we supposed to take this? How literally are we supposed to take this? Because usually if you're reading ancient literature and you come upon a story where a woman is made out of the rib of a man and, and there's two magical trees and a talking snake, uh, you, you tend to think you're dealing with fiction. And that's not to say anything about its inspiration, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that's figurative in the Bible, and it's all inspired. Uh, but just what is the genre? And then with that would go another question, a uh, related question, and that's, uh, what, how does this story integrate with evolutionary theory, if you hold the evolutionary theory? Because according to evolution theory, human beings first arrived on the scene about 200,000 years ago. And in those 200,000 years, there's been a number of different types of human beings. There's actually different species of human beings, like there were different species, like there's different species of dogs today. So we're, we're uh, homo sapiens. And we were called that because we named ourselves, and it means the wise man. We're, 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 we have wisdom, sapiens. Uh, but, but there's also Homo erectus and, and Homo rafendalis, uh, I think it's called, or, and Homo neanderthalus, the Neanderthal man, and all that. Um, what do we do with those things? They have human DNA, although indications are that there was very little crossbreeding because they were so different. Uh, but, but they all had human DNA. Were they in the image of God? Did they fall? If there's a fall, when did they fall? And all those sorts of things. So, nerds are wondering, how does this fit? Indeed. <laughs> so let's move on. Oh, I, I, I used to think I knew. I, I had a theory that I was kind of you know, inclined to believe. But recent reading and evidence has now called that into question. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm working on it. I, I got an idea. It probably is, the fall could relate to the cognitive revolution of the of Homo sapiens about 12,000 BC. And uh, there's actually a, a theory out there that, that we evolved our higher cognitive functions by learning how to gossip. And so that's got to be a fall, right? Though, right? So uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know. But he, here's the thing. I'm so glad I am in a community of people where it's okay to say I don't know, even if you're the senior pastor. Uh, it's it's. Uh, there's a lot of places, and I'm well aware of this, I'm well aware of this, that there's a lot of places where the senior pastor would be taken out back and shot for not being absolutely certain of everything. I mean, that's what we pay you for. You're supposed to model confidence and, and, and unwavering faith and certainty in all things to reassure the flock. And you're supposed to be feeding people the right answers, not raising questions in their brains, for crying out loud. What kind of a pastor are you? I'm so glad I don't, I'm not in a place like that. Uh, where we, we, we really believe here that, that it's, we're to worship God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our body, and all all of our mind. And the mind is made to think. And, and, and you can't think about anything for very long and lose some of your certainty about things. I mean, learning is the process of changing beliefs and there's new evidence, so you've got to revise this or whatever. And, and, and uh, we think that's a good thing. We think questions are a good thing. Pushing back on things is a good thing. Having some disagreements is a good thing. We shouldn't be afraid of that sort of thing. And not being sure of some beliefs, that's an okay thing to be. Amen? Amen. So... 
We don't need to have uh, cross all of our T's and dot every I and have everything in place and be certain about everything. The answer is we're not certain about a whole lot of stuff. Oh, here's what I am sure of, though. Well, I'm not absolutely certain, but I'm, in, I'm willing to base my life on this. I've got good, compelling reasons for thinking Jesus Christ is Lord. I'd share those. You can read about it out there in some books out there if you want. And uh, Jesus clearly, if the Gospels are at all reliable, and they are, uh, he clearly endorsed the entire Old Testament as the inspired Word of God, including the story of Adam and Eve as the inspired Word of God. And if he's, if he's the Son of God, if he's Lord, I don't think he could be mistaken about such a fundamental belief. So all my reasons for thinking Jesus Christ is Lord are now reasons for thinking that the whole Bible is inspired, including this story. And, and if the story ends up not, you can't correlate it with science, well, that doesn't mean it's not inspired. Uh, that just means that answering 21st century science questions apparently wasn't a high priority on God's mind when he inspired this passage. That's all it means. And the passage gets its authority from Jesus' stamp of approval, not from any science stamp of approval. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And so we, 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 not being able to answer the question of how it relates to the science thing, put that aside, now we're going to ask, what does this say to us? What, what does this teach us? Uh, what light does it shed on our current situation? And it is profound. End of nerd moment. Now proceeding on to the rest of sermon. So there's two lessons here. Number one, notice that there are two trees, and they're in the middle of the garden. The one tree was the tree of life. Uh, this is God's provision of life. We're to trust God for this provision of life. And the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's God's prohibition. Uh, to trust God for life in the story, in the context of this, the Genesis 3, it has to do with immortality. Or Genesis 2 it has to do with our immortality. But taken as, if you look at the whole canonical or biblical perspective, the life that we're to trust God for is God's own life. As David mentioned last week, we are created to be in the image of God, living statues of God, and to be, the inhab be inhabited by God. And, and when that happens, we have this fullness of life. It's like when God creates us, he puts his imprint on us. And nothing will fulfill that, that imprint unless God's hand is in it. We try to fill it with all these other things, trying to feel like we have fullness of life, that we've got worth and we've got significance and we have some security. But nothing really fits. And the soul's never satisfied. It's always restless. It's always hungry until that hand is put into that imprint, until God's presence is here. The fullness of life that God wants for us is to share his own life. They feel fully alive. Every human being wants that at the core of their being. They long for this at the core of their being. That's the provision of life. But there's also this provision for this prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is simply God's a loving no trespassing sign saying, don't go here, don't go here, not good, you'll die. So, and, and these two trees are in the middle of the garden, which I think signifies that life in paradise, life in Eden, life as God intended it, life in the kingdom, revolves around trusting God for the provision and honoring the prohibition. All right? Everything revolves around this. This is, this is part of our original covenant. This is the bedrock right here. Um, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you might ask, why is it called that? Because if everything in, in the kingdom revolves around honoring this prohibition, this must be huge. This must be like the mother of all sins. It must be something horrendous. So you'd think it'd be the tree of lust or the tree of debauchery or the tree of violence or the tree of greed or the tree of licentiousness or, or the tree of racism or, or violence, war, or hatred, apathy, the tree of voting Republican or voting Democrat, depending on who you talk to. But it's got to be something big, right? Something huge, apocalyptic. You guys didn't get that one, did you? All right, well, it's all right. Uh, Instead, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's up with that? What's so bad about knowledge of good and evil? Now listen to this, because th th this is 
hardly ever taught out there, but it's so foundational. The idea of the knowledge of good and evil in Semitic culture has the connotation of, of thinking that you have the right and the ability to define good and evil for yourself. Uh, it, it's, uh, you have the ability to judge ultimate good and evil. It's just, so they're taking to themselves the right to define and to experience good and evil. Um, so God, by having this loving trespassing sign up there, God is really saying, here's the thing. Be like me. Be in my image in terms of how you love and how you care for the earth and the animal kingdom. Do that. Be like me. But don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you know, in terms of what you think you can judge. There's a way in which we're supposed to be like God and a way in which we're not. See, the serpent comes to Eve and says, Eve, you know, guess what? You can be like God. And if Eve had been thinking in her right mind, she would have said, hey, no thanks, I already got that. I'm already in the image of God. But he was saying, well, you can be God, like God in this other ways, knowing good and evil, being wise. And uh, uh, he tempts her with this, seduces her into her rebellion. We, the thing is, God is saying, don't try to be like me in, in terms of what you know. Because unlike God, we can't love and judge at the same time. We can't. They're antithetical. So love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. That's what Jesus does for us on Calvary, right? He says, here's what you're worth to me, and I'll prove it by what I'm willing to pay for you, by the sacrifice I'm willing to make for you. So he, he ascribes unsurpassable worth to us. That's what love is. Love is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. Judgment is the opposite. Judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. You're stealing worth from them. Uh, you're, you're, you're giving yourself a sense of worth because you're not like that. We compare, contrast, evaluate as a way of trying to feed our pathetic, hungry souls. We've become pharisaical parasites where you feed off of other people. That's what judgments are. You're feeding off of their worth to ascribe it to yourself. So, for example, you Conservative Christian guy goes to the baseball game and two rows ahead of him sees two guys with their arms around each other. And and the person thinks, because they've been trained to think this way, oh, this is what's wrong with America, this is disgusting, uh, we've lost all of our moral compasses, and it's people like this that are bringing America down. Or something like that. Or maybe he goes to church and sees that, whatever, but the judgment kicks in. Now ask this question, why would anyone think that thought? Everything we do has a motive for it. There's something in it for us. So what is the motive of this thought? Why, why think that thought? What is it doing for you? And if you are honest with yourself, examine it carefully, take, it, take the judgment, any judgment that you've had recently, if you look at it, you're feeding off of that. It's doing something for you. You're enjoying yourself. Because it makes you feel like you have a little bit of worth. You know, however imperfect your life might be, well, at least you're not like this. And the contrast is something that you feed off of. And see, if you're doing that, if you have that judgmental thought, what it means, among other things, is that you're not loving them. You can't both be ascribing unsurpassable worth while you're stealing worth. Those are two opposite activities. You're not loving them in that moment. And to not love them in the moment is to abstain from doing the most important thing. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, that everything we do is to be done in love. Which would include everything we think. It's to be done in love, with a motive for love, ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself. Twice, Paul says, above all, after he's giving these instructions, he ends by saying, above all, put on love. This is the most important thing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, which we've all heard too much because we go to weddings and they always read it, so we get used to it, but it's just a radical passage if you look at it with fresh eyes. There, Paul says, that it doesn't matter what you do, if it's not done with love, it's altogether worthless. 
It can impress crowds. It can wow audiences. It can move mounds. It can speak in tongues. They have all these other gifts and get on the front cover of Christianity today because you know all mysteries and understand all things. But if it's not done in love, it's altogether worthless. So to, to, uh, to not love in a moment, is, is, that's the worst possible thing. And you're not loving in that moment because you're too busy judging in that moment. And I, I, I hope we can see how, how, why these two trees are in the center of the garden. They hang on each other. Um, why is this person needing, feeling like they need to get worth by comparing and contrasting themselves to others? Why? Well, the answer is because they're not getting their worth and their life and their fullness from God. And if you're not getting your life and your fullness from God, you're walking around hungry, trying to get other things to give you that fullness of life. And the number one thing out there to do that is judging others. You can feel tall if you can cut everyone else off of the kneecaps. And so most people, their brain is to a large degree an opinion column. And ours is too, let's be honest. We don't notice it because we're so used to it, but we walk around and we're always evaluating, assessing, approving, excusing, justifying, whatever. It's an it's opinion column. And every one of those thoughts blocks the flow of God's love into us. We can only abstain from the prohibition if we're honoring and trusting God for the provision. It's the fullness of the provision that allows us and empowers us to be free to obey the prohibition. Everything in the kingdom revolves around this. You wouldn't have thought. You wouldn't have thought probably if you, if you haven't heard this before because what the church has to a large degree done is we've taken judgment and rather than seeing it as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and something to avoid, we've Christianized it. We're specialists in it. We think it's our job. We feel guilty if we don't judge. So there are people with their condition like, I got to say something or I just got to think something, I got to do something. Otherwise, otherwise I'm condoning it. I got to speak out against it. And, and, and we're conditioned like that. Paul said, what business do we have judging people outside the church? 1 Corinthians 4. The answer that the American church gives to a large degree is, we got a lot to do with judging people outside because they've got the major sins and we've got the minor sins and we've got to be the moral police because we're more righteous and, and, and whatnot. Here's another broken record we, 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 we say around here a lot. If someone hasn't invited you in on your life, on their life, to help them walk out the kingdom, and they want your opinion on things, and we all need that, by the way. We need people who can speak into our life freely. But if a person hasn't done that, you're only allowed one opinion of them, and that is that they were worth Jesus Christ dying for, and therefore they have unsurpassable worth. That's the only opinion you're allowed. Amen. It's discipleship 101. If Jesus is your Lord, you must agree with him. And if he says every person has unsurpassable worth, then your job is to agree that every person has unsurpassable worth. And regardless of what you may see and approve of or disapprove of or like or dislike or maybe it offends you or grosses you out or whatever, whatever else you see, your job as a kingdom person, discipleship 101, is to set that aside and to just agree with God about the worth of this person. Doesn't matter if they're a friend or a national foe. Doesn't matter whether you, you just are so impressed by their lifestyle or you think it's all out to lunch. Leave that to God. That's why the Bible has this refrain all the time. Leave judgment to me. Why the New Testament so often condemns judging others. Our job is to just love them and, 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 and embrace them as they are. Walk with them. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. An incredible passage. He says to the Corinthians, I resolved, I intentionally and on purpose resolved to know nothing about you when I was among you, except one thing. I got to know one thing about you, and that is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, how is Jesus Christ and him crucified a knowledge about the Corinthians? Well, 
It's the knowledge that God loved the Corinthians enough to die for them, and that's all Paul needed to know. You see, we ought to adopt this policy. To folks who haven't invited us in their life, let's adopt this policy. We don't know anything except Jesus Christ crucified, and we agree with him. We don't know anything except Jesus Christ crucified, and we agree with him. And so set the judgment aside and just become a blessing machine. Just start blessing them for, for the work that they have in Christ. Now, it's okay to discern things. Now, follow this distinction. Discernment is when we separate things this way. Like, uh, the, the word in Greek is, is kind of krino. We get the word uh, critic from it. A critic separates good movies from bad movies. Uh, we need to discern the difference between, am I safe right now or am I unsafe? Uh, do I trust the person to buy this car or, do, or don't I? You have to make decisions like that. We have to discern. What we're never allowed to do is separate from people and then put them beneath us. And that's what judgment is. It's not just about things. I have to be able to say, well, this is kingdom, but this isn't. But I'm never allowed to, if this person has a lot of non-kingdom stuff that they're espousing, I'm never allowed to look down on them and to feed off the contrast. To give myself work. That's called idolatry. You're having someone play a role that only God is supposed to play. Our, it's never okay. Our job, our job is just to agree with God and to love. Now, if there's a... Apparently, I'm told there's a cable show out there, a radio talk show host, uh, who doesn't like me very much. And, and, and once a month or once every two months, someone will write me saying, did you hear what they said about you on the TV? And it's a little entertaining. But um, this person said this at one point, said, oh, this idea that we're supposed to just uh, love people and, and not ever supposed to judge people. Uh, he said, Boyd is going soft on sin. He doesn't take sin seriously. Now think about this. The, the, the statement presupposes that you're only taking sin seriously if we get to judge it. It's not serious if you're going to leave it to God. And notice that whenever folks like this talk like this, it, they think they're taking sin seriously by judging it, but the sin that they take seriously to judge is always someone else's sin. If you're really serious about sin, start with your own sin. <laughs> right? People might actually respect that. The stupid game of, of rating and minimizing your own and maximizing others. But to see, even better yet, here's taking sin seriously. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word there is all. Uh, Paul says that, that apart from Christ, there's none that's righteous. There's none that, that even does good. Romans 3. Um, the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we're dead in our sin. We're lost. We are perishing. We are without hope. We're all in this boat. To take sin seriously is to say this. This world is profoundly broken. The creation is profoundly broken. And we're all born into this broken creation. Profoundly broken. We're all broken. In different ways, in different styles. But no one here has got any interest in playing that stupid, sophomore, self-serving, self-delusional, pharisaical, parasitic game of playing who's broken, this is more broken than who. No, we're not doing that game. We're done with that game. Been there, done that. Yeah, it, it, it's so stupid. It's it, it's like I, 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 it's like it's like toddlers in 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 a sandlot arguing about whose dad is stronger. I don't know. It's like you know your sin is bigger than my sin. My sin is smaller than yours. I speak no subterfuge when I say your sin is huge. My sin is smaller than yours. It's, it's so dumb. So we're, we are done with that game. We're not, we're not playing that. Not here. Not in this crowd. Not in this church. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not next year. Never. We're setting that aside. That is feasting on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
We want to be done with that. If anything, Jesus tells us to do the opposite. Do the opposite of that judgment game. And he's, trying to, he, he's lovingly trying to free us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to wean off it. So to get off it, do the opposite. Instead of minimizing your sin and maximizing theirs, ma maximize your own sin and minimize theirs. Yeah. Matthew 7. Whatever you think you see in somebody else, whatever, he doesn't qualify it, whatever. Could be something big, could be something huge, could be something small, could be a little tiny thing. Whatever you see, consider it a mere dust particle in their eye compared to the tree trunk that's sticking out of your own eye. Now there's got to be a million dust particles in a tree trunk, I'm thinking. So what Jesus is saying is, whatever you think you see in another person, you consider your own sin to be a million times worse than that. <laughs> Amen? And, and see, if, you did, if a fraction of Christians did that, we'd be known as the most selfie-facing people on the planet. The humblest people on the planet instead of being the buttheads of the planet. If, 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 if your sin is a million times worse, that means you can never look down on somebody. You can only look up. You can only look up. Um, Paul says the same thing uh, in, in 1 Timothy uh, 1. He says, here's a saying that's worthy of, for everyone to confess. Uh, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That of whom I am the worst is part of the saying that we're all supposed to be saying. And Paul's not saying, and Jesus isn't saying that we're supposed to walk around saying, oh, I'm just altogether terrible, I'm altogether miserable, I'm, altogether, I'm mega juice, I'm slime, I'm scum. There's not one good thing about me. Oh, it's all God's grace. I, no, don't go there. But it's just a mindset. It's about humility. Um, and and it's, imagine if you really were the worst person on the planet, the worst sinner on the planet. Try to imagine yourself as the worst sinner on the planet in all of history. You're worse than Hitler. You're worse than Mussolini. You're worse than Stalin. You are Dr. Evil himself. Oh. If you are the worst sinner in history, try to enter that, and you were at all sane, would it ever occur to you to judge anyone else? If you know you're the worst sinner, would you ever like self-righteously judge somebody for something they did when you've done trillion times worse? The answer is no. But this is the mindset that we're supposed to have as we walk this life. Our job is to love and not judge. Leave all judgment to God. So life in the kingdom revolves around honoring the, uh, or uh, trusting the provision and honoring the prohibition. Don't judge. Get your fullness of life from God and let go of that judgment. Now, the, the, the second point to bring out of this passage is this. And it's, it's closely related to the first point. And this is probably the most distinctive, fundamental, most repeated belief at Woodland Hills Church. So if you're visiting for the first time, you picked a good day. You're getting it all up front. Here's the thing. Um, the first thing the enemy goes after to seduce Eve into his rebellion is her mental picture of God. Did God say, oh, you can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, he's a liar. You can't trust that deity. And then he paints this picture that, that God is this pathetic being who is forbidding Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not because he has her best interest in mind, but because he doesn't want any competition. The enemy is insinuating that... that God got to be God, knowing good and evil, by eating from this tree. So this tree is the God maker. Really, this tree is God, is what he's insinuating. And Yahweh just happened to get there first, and now he's trying to cut off competition because he wants to be the sole ruler here. And a pathetic, untrustworthy picture of God. But Eve begins to believe it, you can tell, because now she looks at that tree, and it says that, she, that the tree looked like it was delicious, and it was good, and it was good to make her wise. Which, of course, it wasn't good to make her wise. 
she's looking at that tree now. She's stopping trusting God, stopping getting fullness of life. Therefore, she's needing life. She's looking, she's, she's hungry. And the hungrier you get, the more appetizing things become. I'm told that if you're starving to death, a cockroach looks appetizing. Though I hope I never have to find that out for myself. But, but so she's looking at her hungry eyes. It's like, oh, there's something I could get from this. This could give me work. This could do something for me. I think that skit captured like, what might have been going through Eve's mind uh, at the time. Because all, all of our feelings about God are associated with our mental pictures of God. And so as Eve's mental picture of God changes, her feelings are going to change. She's going into an alternate reality. That's what sin is. We imagine alternate reality of our own choosing. And so, as, whereas when she trusted God, she, have, she would have warm feelings towards God. As she loses that trust, she's having cold feelings. She's feeling empty. The hand is no longer in the handprint. She's hungry, so she takes from the tree and she eats from it. And what is it that brought all this about? Her believing an untrustworthy picture of God. The bottom line, folks, is that everything hangs on your mental conception of God. What do you really think in your heart of hearts, in your innermost mind, when you think about God? Everything hangs on this. Your, your relationship with God is entirely mediated through your mental picture of God. You don't know any other God than the one that you picture in your head. So your love for God and your passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. It just won't happen. And the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God because we always take on the image of the God that we worship. Everything hangs upon a having, a, if we're going to get our fullness of life from God, the God that we get our fullness of life from has got to be altogether beautiful, altogether lovely. Show me a Christian who's kind of mediocre, who doesn't get excited about much, who just doesn't really turn down by much. I guarantee you, you get inside their head, they got a mediocre picture of God. Anybody who saw what they saw would be going, huh? Other people, I, I live in fear. They, they do everything because they're supposed to. They got to. They better do it. They're going to get in trouble. They have a fear picture of God in their head. The, nothing determines the quality of your life more than your mental conception of God. So this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. And that's why another broken record that we have around here is anchor everything you think about God in the person of Jesus Christ. And especially in Jesus Christ crucified. Um, you see, most people have like a montage picture of God. They, they haven't really thought about why they believe what about God. So they just sort of inherit stuff. And the picture of God is just kind of a compilation of whatever they inherited, a sort of montage. You know, they've read a few verses here. Well, that's in the picture of God. And the pastor said this once, and that's in the picture of God. The youth pastor did this, and I had a life experience, and I went out to nature, and I discovered this. And whatever life experiences, it all goes into this gobbledygook picture of God. And since all your feelings about God are associated with your mental picture of God, people who have this kind of conception are kind of ambivalent. Yeah, but, and so sometimes they're happy about God, other times they're afraid of God, and it's just a mishmash. But see, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is not one revelation of God among many others. He's not one of the pictures of God in the Bible. He is the culmination, and the, the, the one who supersedes all previous revelations. Um, Philip said to him once, Jesus, you've been talking about the Father so long. Just show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. Just point us to the Father. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, if you want to know what the Father's like, go shop around, read a verse over here, listen to a song, pastor over here. Yeah, shop around. He doesn't do that. He says, John 14, 8, 9, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you should never ask the question, what is God like? He defines what God is like in terms of God's character. If you see me, you see the Father. Keep your eyes. So the New Testament tells us, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Fixed on Jesus. Author of Hebrews. 
In the past, they got little glimpses of truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. They got glimpses of truth. But in these last days, God's come to us in person, in the person of his own son. And unlike everything they got in the past, in the Old Testament, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the shininess of God's shininess. And he is exactly what God is like, down to his very hypostasis is the word that's used, uh, down to God's very essence. There's no part of God that is not Jesus-like. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, so insofar as anyone in the Old Testament saw God accurately, they were seeing exactly what we see. It's just that they only got glimpses of that. Like, like getting glimpses of the sun on a cloudy day. They had a lot of clouds to deal with. But when Jesus comes away, he blows away the clouds and says, this is exactly what God is like. So lock this in. I implore you to lock this in. God is re fully revealed in, the, in, in Jesus Christ, and especially in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Dare to believe that God is as beautiful as God's revealed to be on the cross. When he gives his life for us when we could not have deserved it less. Dare to believe that. And don't add to that or subtract from that or, or modify that or supplement that or alter that or adjust that or compromise that. And don't let any life experiences or anything that you've heard or anything that's been done to you or any conclusions you've ever come to on your own or what have you. Don't let anything pollute or compromise the beauty of your picture of God. Because everything hangs on this. This is everything. This is the treasure. Will you dare to believe this? Dare to believe this. Don't add anything compromise because God does not want a mediocre relationship with us. You may have noticed, if you're a Bible reader at all, that God is not a mediocre God, not an average God, not your typical God. Uh, no, this is a God who's passionate. And God wants a passionate relationship with each one of us. Not a mediocre, just get by, do a minimum thing. He wants a passionate, vibrant, living, joyous relationship with us. He wants a relationship with us that mirrors the love that God is within his own triune being. He wants us to always stay hungry, always stay pursuing him, to be on fire for him, be in love with him. He wants his love to be the thing that makes our life feel really, really full, fullness of life. But that will only happen to the degree that our picture of God is accurate, and it's accurate to the degree that it's based on Jesus Christ crucified. Hallelujah. When you know Jesus Christ crucified, you know all you need to know about God, all you need to know about yourself, all you need to know about each other, and the whole thing revolves around trusting God for that provision. That's what it means to trust God's provision for life. Jesus is God's tree of life, and we're to be eating from that tree daily, abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil daily, and we'll be tempted with that every day, but to be drinking from this well. To, to honor this provision, then, means, and this is the center of the center of everything, we, have we, we, we make time to spend with our Lord and just letting him love on us and pour life into us. And uh, you hear him say everything that he's ever said about you in Scripture, but now you can see and experience him saying it to you, and you see it in his eyes. And ask the Spirit to just open up your inner sanctum, that, that imagination, and where the things of God become concrete and tangible and experiential and begin to impact your life. And ask the Spirit to help you really encounter the living Lord. And spend time. I like to put music in the background because that helps melt your heart. But you just drink in. Just drink in. You were made for this. Just drink from that wellspring of love. Let God just love on you and, and, and you love God back. And just be who you are. And out of the fullness of that covenantal relationship comes the kingdom. That, that's the fuel that we run on. And the fullness of the covenant relationship allows us, empowers us to carry out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And the most fundamental aspect of that will is to agree with, our, with God that everyone we see is what Jesus is dying for and has unsurpassable worth. I'll close with this. Um, this is not easy for a number of reasons. It, it, it's, it, this is the most fundamental challenge of discipleship. Keeping your, your picture of God pure and beautiful and abstaining from judgment. 
Abstain from judgment means you have to be, pay attention to what your autopilot is doing throughout the day. Make a commitment to just start blessing people and you'll notice how you'll, you'll start bumping into all the other junk that's in your brain. All the opinion columns. And just set those aside to, to love. But it's also hard because sometimes there's people in our life that what they do negatively impacts you or negatively impacts the loved one, maybe greatly impacts them. And loving them can be very, I, I'm telling you from experience, it's hard. It requires dying to your old self. That self that loves to be right, that loves to, everyone to know that you're right, that keeps a record of things, that loves to win, that loves to get even. Uh, that self has got to die. It's got to get crucified. But see, doing this, it, it often starts in sheer obedience. A person that, that just, you've got every reason, everyone who would ever know what's going on here would understand why you're justified in hating this person. Okay, you got that person there. And it, loving them and agreeing with God that they're what Jesus died for, it starts as sheer obedience. I, you do it because the Lord says you're supposed to do it and he knows what's good for you, so do it. But it's hard. It's like, Lord, I agree with you that that person, head of unsurpassable worth. I agree that they have unsurpassable worth. It starts like that, but if you persist in this, especially if you pray for this person, I encourage everyone, if you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you ought to every day have at least three, four, five people that are the hardest people in the world to love, and you pray for them every day. That is the best way to mature in the world. That, 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 that will grow you. It, 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 make it a regular part of your assignment. People think that loving enemies is about the question, what do you do if someone breaks into your house? Well, you know, that, that's probably not going to happen tomorrow. So in the meantime, start loving enemies you can love today. And, 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 it will, and it will grow you. And that, it starts with, with, with just sheer obedience, but it becomes joy. I'm telling you, I've, it becomes joy where you begin to see what God sees. It takes some time, but you can, God gives you a little slice of God's heart for this person. And, and then there's this joy because you don't ever realize how much, how much judgment, especially hateful judgment, sucks out of your life. It's cancer. It just sucks joy. And we think we're empowered because we're hanging on to this. But really, it's just a demon sucking life right out of us. And when you can get rid of that, and it, man, it's so free. And there's, there's no freedom like the freedom from not needing to judge anymore. It's hard being judge of the universe. It's an onerous task. Oh. Freedom is getting your full life from Christ and freedom is needing, knowing that your only role here is to just replicate God's character to every single person that you come in contact with. Uh, just, just to, in your mind, in your heart, in your actions, in your words, reflect the fact that they have unsurpassable worth. Everything in the kingdom revolves around this. Honor the provision or trust the provision. Spend time drinking from that provision all the time. Feel good about life because of what God thinks about you as revealed on the cross. And out of that, then let go of judgment and just love. Just love. Just love. It's all about the love. Amen? That, that is freedom and that is joy. Would you stand? Hallelujah. All right. Uh, if you're here this morning, have anything that could use prayer, whether it's a physical thing, emotional thing, spiritual thing, family thing, money thing, whatever, I encourage you to come forward and pray with the prayer teams. They'll be up here by the, the uh, stairs. And as we leave here then today, we're going to go out into a world that's so toxic with judgment. Man, it's toxic. It, it, it's, it's, it takes diligence not to get infected by the toxicity of the pollution in our air these days. But that's our call, folks. So as we leave here today, can we do it with a commitment? 
to always be trusting God for the provision, spending time drinking from that wellspring of life, and honoring the prohibition. Don't judge. Just bless. Just bless, 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 bless. The world will do all the judging. There's plenty of that to go around. Our job is just to provide the alternative, which is to bless and love without condition. If you're in agreement with that, say amen. Go out and love your neighbors. God bless you guys. See you next week.